You retired very young. Yeah. So you're kind of like the Michael Jordan of, of the industry because he retired young, right. came back, won some championships. There's people online talking about Garth Brooks bigger than the Beatles. Oh, what do no. you think? Nobody's ever going to be bigger than the Beatles. Nobody's ever going to be bigger than Elvis. But I get to be part of country music, which mm -hmm. I will say does have the biggest audience of any format. So I'm lucky to be in this format, and it's fun. And i got to tell you, the greatest gift I ever received was getting to go home and raise my kids. The second greatest gift I ever received was getting to come back to get to do this. Welcome to this week's Win Lewis Fab. I'm Ed Chen. And I'm Lonnie Pena. Joining us this week, Nashville Hall of Fame songwriter, Kent Blazy. Hey, Kent. How you doing? Great. Wonderful. I just got back from the fest last week. It's such a buzz to be hanging around with ballrooms full of Beatles people for a weekend. Oh, yeah. And where was that? Uh, Chicago, Illinois. Yeah, I've heard about that guy. He's been doing that a long time, hasn't he? Well, it'll be 50 yeah. years next year. Oh, Lord. Well, you know, somebody <laughs> reminded me on one of the interviews I was doing about this that February 9th, 1964 is going to be 60 years. Then I'm like, oh, my God, don't tell me that. Lonnie's of that age. I wasn't quite old enough to have been there then. <laughs> yeah, I have a vague memory of it, but uh, I was there. I was there eating my bowl of cereal. I said it in front of the TV set. <laughs> Well, you know, I mean, I think that's the way it was for so many of us. We didn't know what to, to expect. And, you know, we just kind of tuned in like everybody else. It was the most tuned in show that had ever been on TV up till that time. Yeah, 70 plus million people. That's kind of crazy when you think about it. Yeah. And just that somehow or other, they had created that buzz and were able to pretty much change the world by what they did. That day or that night is, is phenomenal to me. So have you had any chance to maybe pitch to Ringo Starr? You know, he is looking for country material these days. I didn't know that. If you tell me how to do it, I'll be glad to do it. <laughs> well, I, I think you'd have to find out from his people, find out from his agent. But next year, he has said that he is releasing an EP produced by T-Bone Burnett. And it's going to be a country, really your kind of country, an old school country, not current country kind of right. EP. Well, you know, he sung like Act Naturally, which was a Buck Owens song. And he also sang Don't Pass Me By, which was a pretty country song for the Beatles. So he's always kind of had his heart in country music. And they kind of all did, you know. 
Yeah, they absolutely did. And one of his first solo albums was Buko Blues, which is really an old school country record. Exactly. That's what it was. George was very inspired by Chet Atkins, which gave the Beatles the sound that they had on guitar. I was going to say, Kent, you have your people call Ringo's people. There you go. I like that. And then get together and then invite us to the jam session. (laughs) There you go. (laughs) I like that. And, you know, the only thing I have to warn you is I is my people. (laughs) I love it. It's all we need is ourselves. All we need. That's right. And love. And love. (laughs) Well, you know, Ringo's played the Ryman a couple of times, and I think he's coming back. (laughs) I do have some people I know that have played with him, so I could maybe make a call that way too, you know, and and try to get him something. We know for a fact that he is looking, and some of the things that you've written would be right up his alley. I like that. Well, you know, you guys know more than I do, so thanks. (laughs) 10%? No, 20%. Well, yeah. (laughs) We love it. Hey, Kent, I guess you'll get into it in a little bit. Where are you at right now? What city are you calling from? I am in Nashville, Tennessee. Okay. Music City, USA. All right. I love it. I love it. Just curious. Where are you guys? (laughs) Uh, We're in Houston. We're in Texas. Okay. A little warmer down there, maybe? (laughs) A little too warm for us, if you ask. Yeah. It's dreadfully triple digits. But we're only 14 hours from you, I believe. So I'm ready to take a trip, Ed. How about it? (laughs) Well, (laughs) the cool thing is we've had those same temperatures you've had for about a month. And then this week, somehow or other, we got a break in the weather and have more 60 degrees in the morning and 80s at the afternoon, and it's just been spectacular. I talked to a friend of mine who just left from Montana, and it's 93 up there, so I'm very grateful for 80-something degrees. Yeah, absolutely. Just when you think it cannot get any worse, as John Lennon would say, <laughs> can't get no worse. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And then the other thing that has us in the country mood, Dolly Parton just released her cover of let it be well just yesterday as we're speaking have you had a chance to listen to it yet i have it was a pretty wild version of it especially on the end they were rocking out Peter Frampton, Mick Fleetwood, and Paul and Ringo together with Dolly. That's pretty amazing. That's very amazing. And, you know, Dolly, she just keeps reinventing herself. She's phenomenal. One of my songs on this new record was about Paul because he's such an inspiration that he's still out there playing and Ringo's still out there. Bob Dylan's still out there. Willie Nelson. You don't have to buy into it that you're too old to do it. And Dolly's living proof of that. Willie is an inspiration to all of us. No matter you know, what sort of genre you're into, you can't help but love Willie. Oh, yeah. Kent, you're referring to the, your song, Die Young? I picked up an electric guitar Been tearing it up 
There you go. I love it. I guess we'll talk about that a little bit. Listening to the song for the first time, the question I had, was that Paul doing the second lead with Dolly? I, I believe so. so. Yeah. Yeah. So do you think they AI that a little bit? He sounded really good. I mean, he, he's 80, what, 81, 82? Yeah, but you know, when he plays live, he still plays all those songs in the same key he did them in when he was 24. So that's pretty spectacular to me. It really is. I like it. Like you said earlier, Kent, it's, it was kind of a little crazy at the end, but it, it's a good version of that song. It really is. It just shows you how it can keep being reinvented. That's what they do. They keep reinventing themselves, and that's pretty cool. So, okay, let's go into your record. It's out now everywhere. People can get it both online via streaming and, well, for those who are old like us, you can still get physical copies if you want to. From the Beatles to the Bluebird, Bluebird, Bluebird Cafe. Is Cafe in the title of the record? <laughs> no, it's not in the title okay. of the record, but it's on the song itself. But okay. It's getting to be too long of a title. You know, you got to be able to fit it on a CD still. And as Paul McCartney says with regards to streaming, you have to keep your titles where they fit on people's screens. Otherwise, it just never shifts over and people don't really know what the title of the song is. It either just scrolls and keeps scrolling and you never actually really get a feel for it. What is the title of this record? Yeah, exactly. That's why I was trying to keep it shorter. Gotcha. Are you planning to do a vinyl release, Kent, or basically streaming and CD only? Probably streaming and CD. There's two things. One, there's a backlog in Nashville of about six months of being able to get something put on vinyl because so many people are going back to that. Okay. And then two, it's really expensive to get the vinyl made and to get an album cover that goes with the vinyl. And then the other thing, because I've had some friends that do it, we do a lot of stuff out on the road, you know, traveling all around, flying all around. And boy, it's it's pretty difficult to be hauling CDs around by themselves, but LPs are way worse than that. If we were selling them just here in town or selling them online, it'd be a different thing. But I would love to do it. It's just, it doesn't make sense for a lot of different reasons. Yeah, it's just not practical for the type of release that you have here, and especially if you're touring. That's an added weight, right? Yes, and <laughs> like much. I said, I is my touring manager. Uh, <laughs> so. Well, and it's made worse by the trend these days of the McCartneys and the Taylor Swifts and your good friend Garth Brooks to put out copies in multiple different colors of vinyl. So, you know, right. if you're going to do that and you're going to just keep pressing and pressing them, Nobody else can get into the room to do it. Well, that's kind of what it is. I think Taylor and Garth both have stuff coming out pretty soon, and I think that's 
part of the reason for it here in town. You know, she's doing every album that she didn't own again. So that I think that's pretty cool and ballsy of her, but it just backlogs it for everybody else. Well, I mean, it's really smart. Yeah. Talk about what you think about the business of the business, songwriting and performing and owning your own rights. The Beatles were really significant in bringing that to the music world. Before that, it was just let's rip off the artist as much as we possibly can. Well, now we've kind of gone back to that (laughs) with with streaming. You know, Uh, my big thing was in 2016, they quit making CDs. And so say the three of us wrote a song and it was on a George Strait album. Every time a CD got sold, we would all get paid a small amount for having a song on the George Strait. What happened when they went to downloading is you could have a song on a George Strait album And if nobody downloaded that song, you didn't get paid. And now, with everything pretty much being streaming, it's really hard to track anything. And, you know, we've been in this lawsuit for about four years to get more money coming in from Spotify and Amazon, all these people. And we just won the uh, court case for the second time about December last year. Spotify is actively campaigning to lower the 2018 to 2022 US royalty rates for songwriters established by the Copyright Royalty Board. Additionally, Spotify is campaigning to lower the upcoming decision on the 2023 to 2027 US royalty rates for songwriters with the intention of lowering it as much as 10%. And as it stands, Spotify payments to songwriters are not sustainable when considering that it takes thousands of streams to earn as little as $100. Spotify says they don't have the money to pay us, but they can pay Joe Rogan $200 million a year. So I don't really understand how that works, but I can tell you from what doesn't come in, it's pretty minuscule. And I don't know how a young songwriter would make it in this time because the way we got paid is a publisher would hire you kind of on loan. They called it a draw. And then when you had some songs on records and the mechanicals came in, that's how you got paid. But once CDs quit being made, there was no money coming in from mechanicals. And then the next year, they took all the CDs out of cars. So even if you had a thousand CDs, you no longer could get a car that played CDs. So my little brain thinks it's conspiracy, but, you know, we won't go into that. It's like one minute we had CDs and mechanicals and next minute they're totally disappeared. So we've lost probably 5,000 songwriters in Nashville in the last five years or so since this happened. Mm. And they're either back home or driving Ubers or teaching school or whatever else. So it's an interesting time for the music business and songwriters. We have to get it figured out somehow or another, but it's kind of a strange combination of everything together, trying to get somebody who can understand it all and put it in a feasible format so everybody can benefit from it. Yeah, absolutely. You know, for so long, like you just mentioned, for years and years, mechanical rights were what fed artists and what motivated artists having those royalties. Yeah, and now it's touring. That's why I'm out on the road playing a lot. But you even look at like Steely Dan or the Doobie Brothers or some of these people, they're back out on the road because they don't have the money coming in that they did. When there were CDs, you know, the doors would still sell 100,000 copies of something a year, whether they were doing anything or releasing new stuff. All of a sudden, that just dried up. And 
So these guys like Steely Dan, they're like, well, dang, we got to go back out on the road to keep the lifestyle that we like. Yeah, it's amazing how few copies it takes to get into the Billboard charts these days, the album charts in particular. We all look and say, oh, great, Paul McCartney has managed to have a new number one record. Well, he sold 10,000, 15,000 physical copies of it to get to the chop of the physical charts. It's like, wow, how did that happen? Yeah, it's pretty crazy, isn't it? It's a whole different world. So, all right, let's talk a little bit about your record. I think we were going there before, but the first song is a song called February 9th, 1964. February 9th, 1964. The world saw sound they never heard before. Four mop tops up on the TV screen. Old men laughed and the young girls screamed. Every red-blooded American around and you remember seeing the show as it went on yeah and i don't even know why i watched it i was a clueless little kid you know i was probably (laughs) eating my cereal in front of the tv too but kids at school were talking about it and you know and my parents for some reason tuned into it but when i saw it that night it was just hard to compute exactly what i was seeing because it was so far beyond what music had been till that moment but the one thing that i perceived about it even being a little kid was You know, we had gone through the Kennedy assassination and the whole country was really depressed, kind of about like 911, if people don't remember that far back, how people were scared to go out at night. People were walking around kind of in a daze and the Beatles brought back a joy and a freshness to the world that we really needed after Kennedy had been shot. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, and the the thing about that was it almost brought that relief with just in a matter of a few months, post-November the 22nd of 63. I was right there. For myself, Kent, I have vague memories of 64. I have more vivid memories of the Beatles when they appeared on the 65 at Sullivan. So I cherish those memories because they're very vivid in my mind. Well, and things had changed so much between 64 and 65 even. You know, we went to color TV and the audio was so much better and they were so much bigger, you know, nobody knew yeah, who they were yeah. the very first time. And then in 65, they kind of ruled the world. Ed, correct me if I'm wrong, Ed, but was the Beatles' appearance on Ed Sullivan, which was in the middle of September, had they waited one more week, it would have been in color broadcast. Yes, correct. <laughs> and the Ed Sullivan folks were already ready to move over to color. It was the fact that they had to have the show before the Shea Stadium show. Ah, gotcha. Yeah, Ed Sullivan was a smart guy. Yeah, he really was, and he was good at picking talent. We have a little bit of that these days. The late-night hosts, Colbert and Kimmel and Fallon, they're pretty good at identifying talent as well, but very rarely, particularly with musicians, do they give them an opportunity to debut on their show. Exactly. They have to be something before they can be on the show. Get on YouTube, folks. <laughs> you, you can make it overnight. Not. SNL is a little bit more amenable to newer <laughs> acts, I would say. But I mean, that's yeah. kind of the edgy audience that they're going for. Yeah, you can get on Instagram or Twitter and become an instant yeah. star. You know? Getting back to your song, February the 9th, you had a little bit of uh, experimental stuff in there, I noticed. It's a little flange on your vocals. Or yeah, what was that? It, 
Beatles kind of came up with so much of that stuff that people ended up putting on records like the flanging and the backwards guitars. They just were in there experimenting all the time on what could be different. So uh, we were just kind of playing around with reminding people what all they had invented and come up with on uh, recordings that nobody else had ever done before. The CD itself was recorded in Nashville? Yeah, it was recorded at Sound Emporium, just a great studio that's been there a long time. Trisha Yearwood has cut every record there. Don Williams cut there. An amazing legacy of people. A lot of rock stars sneak in there and cut there. And The Sound Emporium was built in 1969. The A-Room was built in 1969 by Cowboy Jack Clement. And he actually was a bit of a rogue for Nashville. Um, Cowboy kind of kind of did a little bit of the flipping of the finger to Nashville because Nashville liked you to stay in their little box. They wanted you to be and do exactly what they said. And Cowboy was like, nope, I'm going to do it my way. I'm going to be who I am, which he was literally the Pied Piper of Nashville and was one of the most colorful characters I've ever met in my life. The studio became kind of the it place for a lot of the rock people. Like Todd Rundgren was the first client here. And we had a lot of rock that was done here back in the day. The band R.E.M. came in the 80s and did Document, which was one of their biggest records ever. Nashville is not just about country music. In fact, to me, it's just the opposite. What we do here, the small majority is country and everything else is rock or independent. It's got two really good rooms. And this time we were in the really big room. It was very cool because we all played at the same time in the same room. Oh, nice. And uh, we cut 10 songs in one day, like the Beatles did on their first record. So we just were having fun and we knew what we were doing. I had a great band. It just came out as good as I could possibly imagine. Yeah, I've heard you say that about a couple of your records, that that you really like to work fast and really do just a day or two to record all the basic tracks and then maybe one more day for overdubs and three days, one week is done. Yeah, exactly. And that's the way so many records were done back before it got, well, you phone in your part, I'll phone in my part. I love to be in the same room with all the players at the same time, kind of looking them in the eye, everybody following each other. There's an energy of four people together, five people together in a room, all playing together to me that you can't replicate another way. That is so true. You had a co-writer, did you not, for February the 9th? I've been writing and playing in a band with a guy by the name of Steve Allen, and I call him my brother from another mother because (laughs) we like so much of the same music. So I wanted him to come up with some parts on that song, and he came up with that 12-string lick that I thought was great. He kind of had the bookends. He helped me write the very first song and the last song on the record. Okay, nice. uh, Very nice. The last song on the record was one that we cut at Leon Russell's studio in Tulsa. We were out there doing a show, and this woman, Teresa Knox, has totally redone Leon Russell's legacy and studio and church and brought it all back to life. And after we got done with the show, she said, you guys want to record a song here? And we're like, well, yeah. (laughs) No, (laughs) yeah. Very nice. Yeah. You know, the Bob Dylan Museum is there, too. So if you're ever near Tulsa, it's worth a trip to go there and check out both of those places. Yeah, yeah. a friend of ours, uh, Ed Mayberry, who used to be a journalist, he's now retired, just came back from there not too long ago. Yeah. Somebody said when we were going to go there that Tulsa was like Nashville 30 years ago. And I thought, wow, I think I'd like to go there. (laughs) (laughs) 
Austin has a touch of that as well. It tries to be that old school sort of music feel. Well, yeah, and they do a good job at it. And, you know, the cool thing was people didn't realize that when Leon was there, George Harrison would fly in and do something. Eric Clapton would fly in, Bob Dylan. It was a pretty thriving place while Leon was there. And a lot of people don't know the history of the music that came out of Tulsa. Bob Wills and Texas Playboys were, Mm -hmm. some of their band were from there. And in fact, Steve Allen's guitar teacher was the guitar player for Bob Wills, which you can't get any better than that if you're learning how to play guitar than have Bob Wills' guitar player be the guitar teacher you're taking lessons from. So you had mentioned the 12-string and how the 12-string is really your preferred instrument almost. You have done a Birds tribute record. Of course, you realize that the whole Birds sound, the Mr. Tambourine Man thing, came out of Hard Day's Night to a certain extent. Exactly. George Harrison had the very first Rickenbacker. In 1964, George met with Rickenbacker president F.C. Hall at the Plaza Hotel in New York, who had arranged with Brian Epstein to show the Beatles some of the new instruments he had produced. One of these instruments in particular was an electric 12-string that he just developed called the Rickenbacker 36012. It was first offered to John Lennon, but John suggested that George might like it. Harrison started using this guitar as soon as the band returned to England. In particular, he used it for songs such as I Should Have Known Better, followed by I Call Your Name and A Hard Day's Night on April the 16th, 1964. Harrison actually started using this guitar again in 1987 for his solo album Cloud Nine. He played it on the track Fish on the Sand. One of the really cool features of this Rickenbacker 12-string guitar is the way that the tuners are aligned. This makes it so that it's easier to know which string you're actually tuning. The 36012 was the first ever 12-string that Rickenbacker produced. And the one that was given to George Harrison was actually the second one made. And it was in that movie, and they had just given it to him. And Roger McGuinn went to the movie theater and saw that guitar, and he had been a folky, and he thought, well, I'm going to go get one of those. And, of course, he revolutionized the sound of the Rickenbacker 12-string with the compressor on it. And that's how I started really wanting to play guitar, was I heard Roger McGuinn playing that 12-string on Mr. Tambourine Man, and that fired me up enough to want to start learning how to play guitar. So you started on the 12-string? You learned now, You learned on I, the 6-string first. Yeah, I started on, like most people did back then, a little POS Chinese guitar that had the strings about an inch off the frets. And, you know, <laughs> yep. these days, if a kid wants to learn how to play, you can go get a really good guitar for cheap. But that wasn't the case back then. It was the cheap guitars were definitely called cheap for a reason. You look at John Lennon's very first guitar. It had a sticker in there, guaranteed not to split. Yeah, sometimes I wonder what kept all of us playing under those circumstances. You know, your fingers bleeding and it's like, this isn't any fun. (laughs) (laughs) Well, but it is. You listen to the record, you hear, I want to do that. And that doesn't go away. Right. I was from Kentucky where now we got Google, we got YouTube, you can go on and find out anything. But I kept trying to figure out these songs and they were all like in F sharp and C sharp. And finally somebody said, do you not know there's a standard tuning and you're playing all the songs in the wrong key? And I'm like, no, nobody ever told me that. I know. That helped once I learned that I could play a G chord and it worked with what was on the record instead of F sharp chord. Yeah. And the fact that the Beatles used Verispeed didn't help things. It'd be off by about a half a step, usually. <laughs> well, and then uh, Poco, who I was a big fan of, they tuned down a half a step. Yeah. 
And it's like, how come I can't figure out these songs? And (laughs) I still can't. So, you know. (laughs) Yeah, Lawrence Juber, who was the final guitarist in Wings, he prefers dad-gad tuning. And it's impossible to figure out anything. I mean, granted, none of us have Lawrence's hands, but you you listen to it, it's like, what is he playing? And it's like, oh, okay, you you have to go down to dad-gad and then move on from there. The next to final song on the album, She Is, that's in Dad Gad, because I had a house sitter that was over here. I guess she played guitar, always leave a guitar out. I got home and I picked up the guitar to play something. And I'm, how'd this guitar get so out of tune? (laughs) And then I realized it was in Dad Gad. And so I thought, well, I guess I'll write a song on it that way. So okay, uh, the tuning on that (laughs) song on the record is in Dad Gad. She's a fan. Of hope in a world gone crazy. Everything she does never ceases to amaze me. She says anything is possible, and I just have to believe. All the gifts she is, the gifts she is to me. Very cool. I mean, if you yeah. know what you're doing, you can get some really great results. You know, Lawrence loves to do these cover albums of Beatles songs, and he always comes up with something really inventive, in part because of the tunings he's using. Yeah, he's he's just phenomenal. And for me, I just kind of winged it. You can listen to it and see, well, he didn't really know what he was doing. He was <laughs> doing something, but it, it was fun, and it kind of gave me almost a sitar sound on what I wanted. So that's kind of what fired me up to begin with is it just droned. And that's what he can do when he plays all these Beatles songs. And he can get some of these fingerings that you couldn't probably do any other way. For sure. So that's three songs off the record. Do you have any other Beatlesisms from the rest of the material that you particularly want to speak to right now? The second song that's on there, From the Beatles to the Bluebird Cafe, was kind of the thing of, I was over in Liverpool and... On the dock where you come in, there's the Beatles statues, and they're a little bit bigger than life-size, and it was cold when I was there that day, and I had my picture taken with the Beatles, and I was wearing a Bluebird sweatshirt, and somebody showed me the picture, and I said, that's a good album title. (laughs) So I immediately started thinking about it because the Beatles influenced everybody who's still playing music, whether they know it or not, and the Bluebird was where Garth got his start playing my song, If Tomorrow Never Comes. If that performance that he did that night hadn't happened, he may have never happened, and that song would have never happened. Wow. So there was kind of a tie-in together between the Beatles and the Bluebird. But I'm lucky I've always made my living
have spoken of how there was just so much chance involved in the Garth Brooks story. The more that we sit and read about the Beatles story, it's like there's so many ways it could have not happened. We're lucky enough to live in the universe where everything came together in just the right way that here we are. I'm fascinated with reading about all these people like the Beatles and the birds and how they got to where they were and uh, you know, what could have happened or might never have happened. And if they hadn't met George Harrison on a bus, would they have been the Beatles? If Paul and, and John hadn't met each other, what would have happened? It's just amazing to me that it all fell into place. I kind of feel like it's a God thing that that even happened. You know, the universe conspired to put these four people together. And then they went through their hellhole years in the trenches in these crappy places over in Germany and sleeping on the stage because they couldn't afford a hotel room and what kept them going and all that time. But the cool thing to me is a lot of people have mantras that keep them going. And John Lennon's was, where are we going, boys? And they'd say, to the toppermost of the poppermost. And that was the thing they would say all the time. And Lord, they went to the toppermost of the poppermost. Well, thank you for mentioning that because I host another show called Toppermost of the Poppermost, where we look at the charts from 60 years ago. Check it out if you're looking for 60s rock and roll. Oh, I love that because <laughs> there's so much great music coming out of England, you know, once they opened the floodgates and then it washed back over to America and we returned it with the birds in Buffalo Springfield and a hundred other people. Things, right. things weren't just dead in the States either. You know, you had the Beach Boys coming. You had right. Motown just starting its rise. So, yes, the American charts were less hip than the British charts, but there were things there, and there was a lot of country. I mean, we just finished uh, doing a show where we were talking about the Hootenanny. Well, you know, it's amazing because back then, the charts, you could hear the Beatles, you could hear Roger Miller, you could hear Frank Sinatra, you could hear Motown, you could hear the Beach Boys, and then you turn around and hear Dusty Springfield or something. And it was just an eclectic thing. And I think that really made an impact on me that these days they try to pigeonhole everything. You know, it's yeah. got to be this or it's got to be that. But AM radio was definitely an amazing place to hear all kinds of music. And 50 years ago, it just exploded. Oh, absolutely. When I visit San Antonio, Texas, there is an AM radio station, much like we had here in Houston back in the day. In Houston, it was K-I-L-T, A-M. In San Antonio, there's a radio station, K-O-N-O-A-M. And believe it or not, Kent, they still have the same format. They play rock and roll oldies. For a long time, the greatest hits from the 50s and 60s could only be heard on San Antonio's original oldie station, Kono AM860. Well, times have changed. Now you can hear good time oldies in crystal clear stereo on the new Kono FM 101. FM 101 is Kono in stereo, playing your favorites by the Beatles, Elvis, the Beach Boys, and more. Good time oldies sound great on the new FM 101 Kono. Turn it on. I think a lot of people love that kind of stuff. It holds up. You know, that's the amazing thing about it. Well, yeah, the music, the whole aesthetic. So when I, when I visit San Antonio, and I do quite often for, for work and family, I l exclusively listen to that station. They also have an FM counterpart, but I prefer to listen to it in AM 
you know, the static. Sure. And mono. You, <laughs> and mono. You, you can't. And mono, yeah. that's right. Yeah. I still listen to WSM, you know, which is a 650 on the AM dial. People all over the world call the Ryman Auditorium the mother church of country music. That's because so many of the Grand Ole Opry's traditions were born here. The fact is, the foundations of the Opry and Nashville's entire country music industry were laid in an office building several blocks away. It all started with a pioneer radio operation. Picking, strumming, fiddling. That's the legend. 6.50 a.m. WSM. You'll hear some great stuff that you won't hear anywhere else. And it's just great that they're still acknowledging all these people that did amazing work back then. You know, the cool thing that we had going for us and they had going for us, these days you've got managers and agents and record labels telling you who you have to be or what you have to do. Nobody was doing that back then. Hence, you had the Birds, you had Jimi Hendrix, you had Clapton and Cream, you had Buffalo Springfield. They just did what they did. Nobody tried to make them be something else. And I think that's why that creative period was so amazing and what was produced in that period of time. I mean, again, it's the fortunate thing about who the Beatles had around them. You know, they had George Martin, they had Brian Epstein. One of the things we like to say is, had they actually gotten on Decca Records from January 1st, 1962, they would have been a completely different band and they might as well have ended up Brian Poole and the Tremolos. Well, you're exactly right. It's just one more of those things that fell into place. You know, who thinks George Martin would have ever done something like that? And to say he would produce them and kind of whip them into shape totally changed where everything went. Yeah, especially being a comedy producer. And you see these pictures back then of the engineers in the studio and they're wearing doctor coats, lab coats. And, you know, (laughs) what is that about? I don't know. You couldn't get dust in any of the instruments. Well, there you go. The sound quality of the Beatles records was so good because of EMI and their fastidiousness. Right. And it was the Beatles who then said, okay, we understand all of this, but... We have to go beyond. We have to do something that you've never done. We don't want to break the instruments, but we have to be allowed to do it our way. Yeah, and the same way with the uh, engineering uh, while they were recording, you know, about, well, let's just turn these knobs and see what happens. And, you know, before that, it was like, oh, God, don't anybody touch these knobs on the control board, you know. And uh, the same with Clapton when he went in to record with uh, John Mayall for the Blues Breaker album, which basically set the tone for a 1959 Les Paul through a Marshall. He was playing so loud, the engineer said, we've never recorded anything this loud. We can't record this. They won't let us do this in the studio. And he said, well, hell, just throw a blanket over it then. And, <laughs> and they did it. They didn't want to do it, though. They, they were just freaking out. But he set a tone for music that people still use today. Yeah. Well, (laughs) that's why Ringo put the tea towels on the toms. The other quick story about the recording was when they finally let them go up into the control room, Paul noticed that the board had a switch. There was a classical switch and there was a pop switch. And and his comment was, why do they get all the good EQs? (laughs) There you go. (laughs) I like that. I had never heard that story, but that's crazy. Yeah. Let's get the best sound we can. All right, the album was inspired by your trip to Liverpool. Why did you end up going over there? Was it just a vacation, or was it something that you had business over in that country? Well, it was kind of a double-edged thing. I had more business over in Ireland because I'd been over there 
doing a, a tour or two. And that was going to be one of the stops along the way. But, you know, you're so close to Liverpool and I've always wanted to go that we went there before we went down to Ireland. And it was just everything you kind of dream of. You got on the bus and you rode around and went to see John Lennon's home and Paul McCartney's home, Ringo Starr, where he lived, Strawberry Fields and Penny Lane and go to the cavern. It just felt like you understood kind of where they were coming from and how much it changed because Liverpool now is a very clean, nice looking city. But back then it was a port town that was kind of a not a really place you wanted to hang out, I think. So it was it was great to see how much had changed in that period of time. And McCartney still comes back every year, which I thought was really cool. It was just an honor to be there and to just get a vibe of where they came from and how far they came from where they were. Kent, were you able to make it to London? We were supposed to, and the ship that we were on could not dock in London. We docked at, oh, where's the place where they set the time for the whole world? Greenwich. Greenwich. That's where we had the dock, and we had people lined up to see in London, and we never got there. So we went and visited these people we knew in Ireland who had taken us on a big tour, a kind of a Garth tour. It was four of the people that were writers on Garth's albums, and you know, he's like the Beatles over there. And so we went over there and played gigs all around Ireland. And oh, nice. it was pretty amazing, very nice. exciting, beautiful place, beautiful people. So I'm hoping to go back maybe next year and do the same thing again. It's very yeah. nice to be in Ireland, though. <laughs> Have you been in any way flattered by the hysterical uh, reaction of teenagers? Yeah, yeah. very flattered. It's been great. It was marvelous last <laughs> night. Does. And we hope it will be as good tonight. You were very satisfied with the Yeah, yeah it was great. great. It was marvelous. The people are wonderful. Well, boys, could I introduce you to my barber? Yeah. Oh, no, kill us with a gag. Do you know you look like Matt Munro? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Give us a rush with love. <laughs> Thanks, boys. <laughs> Don't talk about rushing. Thank you very much. And could you sign two pictures for Spastic Kids, which were given to me this morning? Yeah. Before you go, I couldn't get a chance. Love to. Right? Love to. Yeah, I myself was able to visit London and Liverpool a year before the pandemic, Kent, in March of 2019. I'm so happy I did. Did you get a chance to go into John Lennon's and Paul McCartney's home? No, we did not. Uh, We did get to go up to Paul McCartney's home. We may have been able to go inside that one, but not John Lennon's. I was on a special tour where I paid a little bit, but I got to go inside. It's amazing the living as far as the lack of space. We're talking about a literally like a six by 10 room at the biggest in some of yeah. these these small homes, very small, no well, closets. Then, <laughs> I can't remember. I think it was George's house and it was kind of just a row house and we got there and all these people were sitting outside smoking cigarettes all around there that lived there, you know, and it's yeah. still kind of a low class kind of thing. And so one woman said, well, this is where George Harrison lived. There's nobody home right now. You can just go on in if you want to. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not trusting you sitting there with your cigarette and your beer. You go in, you never come out. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. Yeah. One of George's old homes nowadays is actually an Airbnb. So if you go over again and you spend the night, you can spend the night in one of George Harrison's childhood homes. Wow. But do you want to? That's another question. <laughs> 
it was a little scary place, you know, where, where the, I guess it was his first home, but I'll, I'll check that out. That would be fun. Let's talk a little bit about songwriting since that's where we seem to be going. How do you look to Lennon and McCartney as songwriters, particularly as compared to the way you like to write? Well, I don't think anybody can really top what they did, that body of work that they have. And what was so amazing about them, they were, of course, influenced by the Everly Brothers and Presley and Little Richard and all those people. But so many of the chord changes that came out of what they did and the melodies they did. And, you know, it was all groundbreaking at the time. And so when I'm working and trying to come up with songs, that's what I'm aiming for is to come up with some of these chord changes that are more like what the Beatles would do on some things. In country music these days, it's gotten where just about everything is just four chords, a G, E minor, C, and D. And it's gotten a little stagnant to me. And, you know, it used to be where you had all these, my wife calls them money chords, you know, like Glenn Mm -hmm. Campbell would do or something like that. And so the Beatles, they're still just an inspiration every time I sit down with a guitar and, it's like, what would Lennon and McCartney do? Not that I have any capability to do <laughs> what they did, but it's still a start-off point, you know? And when you're kind of stuck in the muck of certain chord changes, it's like, well, what would they do to, to make this kind of pop out in a different way? I think that's the most relevant thing to me is you listen to their songs, and there wasn't anything like that before that. And there yeah. still isn't. The fact that none of the Beatles had any really formal training And I'm sure a lot of their songwriting, as far as the chord changes, were purely experimental because they didn't have that formal training. They were willing to do that. Rather than staying in the paradigm of what had already been, they were kind of stretching that out. And I kind of feel like maybe the Everly Brothers were a big reason for that because of some of the chord changes that they had, and even Buddy Holly. And it was like, well... Maybe we could do something like that. Well, that's kind of where I'm at when I'm doing my thing. What would they do? Are you into the 50s rock as well? The Everly's and and Buddy Holly and Little Richard and, well, Carl Perkins. I mean, we spoke a little bit of Carl Perkins, but you can just see so much how Carl was to influence the songwriting, not only of John and Paul, but of George as well. Well, yeah, and, you know, he probably would have been as big as Elvis Presley, But he had a car wreck right when his career was taken off, and he never really recovered all that well from it. You know, he had some hits and stuff like that, but he was on his way, and then that happened. So he was a big influence on their songwriting, on their guitar playing. I love that because even though he wasn't big, they carried his legacy along when they came along and did a lot of Perkins songs, which is pretty cool to me because he was kind of an unknown in America after his first couple big hits and he disappeared and they were putting them on the records. And then you go, well, let's go back and listen to him. Carl was actually over in England while the Beatles were recording both in the studio and for the BBC, some of Carl's songs. And he was like, you know, these boys got a lot of sun records in them. (laughs) Well, that's true. You know? And the other thing that we take for granted these days is, okay, we hear a song or we want to hear a song. We go to iTunes, we go to Apple, we go to anywhere, and you can get any song in an instant. And these guys would ride three hours on a bus to hear Tutti Frutti by Little Richard that somebody had 45 of, or the Everly Brothers. And they didn't take it for granted. It was Everything was exciting and eye-opening. And I think it's 
gotten where we're a little jaded because everything's right at our fingertips that music doesn't really mean as much to us as it meant to them. Yeah, you're so right. I like the story that Paul tells about someone across town knew the F chord. They all got on the bus just to go to meet this person to show them the F chord. Yeah. Can you imagine there was YouTube back then? <laughs> I know. That's the thing. It's like if you see these young kids these days, all they got to do is go to YouTube and they can see anything and learn anything. And, <laughs> yeah. you know, it's just like me, finally somebody telling me, hey, there's a standard tuning and my whole world <laughs> changed. These days, they all can get that in one minute. Absolutely. Well, I mean, again, once Brian came along, they were just so fortunate to have a record store owner as their manager, especially one who made a point of ordering every record he possibly could making sure that if anybody requested something he would have it so the beatles could go into the store after hours and just play a and b side of every single new record that came out it's like i like this i don't like that oh wow that's cool yeah and that's all they drew on when they were, were writing songs because they had that available to them that most people didn't have and I think it really expanded their songwriting possibilities by being able to do that. And then he was so great at merchandise. All the Beatles stuff he came out with that just, to me, made them that much bigger. The dolls and the rulers and the watches and the whatever, you know. It's like nobody had ever really thought of that like they had thought of it up until that moment. Yeah, it's amazing how little merchandising there really was for Elvis. And, you know, then come 64... That's probably the biggest merchandising boom ever until like Star Wars. I'd say you're accurate on that. Yeah, you had the Beetle shampoo, the talcum powder, the exactly. Beetle hangers, whatever. Yep. <laughs> Pretty crazy. I wanted to ask you, Ken, about one of your songs. I think it's the third track on the CD, Writing Songs. Is that autobiography? You know, there's a couple songs that kind of have Garth in the in the songs in this record. And one of them was when I met him, he was cleaning churches and selling boots. And being Garth Brooks was nowhere in his universe at that time. And so we would just get together with other people or just me and him. And we were just writing songs. We were hoping something would happen. But you just keep your head down and you keep writing songs and you keep thinking maybe one of these days somebody's going to hear something they like. So that was kind of a nod to what we were doing before anybody discovered us. And that's what we're still doing. Yeah. It's just one of those things of what would have happened if he hadn't been a star, the same like if the Beatles hadn't happened. I mean, to me, being around Garth Brooks, Meteor Rise was about like being around the Beatles, I would say, with their friends and people who knew them. You know, one minute they're playing in these crappy places in Germany, and the next minute they're famous around the world. And same with Garth. He was cleaning churches and selling boots, and three years later, he's the biggest thing in country music. And it's like, 
wow, how'd that happen? Yeah, that is pretty amazing. But that song is, it's a really good song. That's one that stuck out for me. Well, thank you. Yeah. I had fun doing it. The next song that's on there is a song about my dear friend and Garth's dear friend, Kim Williams. We wrote four number ones together with him and Garth. He had a song that Garth recorded called New Way to Fly. And every time I would be driving around, I would see all these birds on high lines. And that's kind of the first line in that song. Okay. Every time I see birds on a high line It makes me think about you And all of the amazing and crazy things I watched you do You rose out of the flames Yeah, nothing could stand in your way From Poor Valley to a man on that CMA stage. <laughs> I was down in Texas, in I think Waring, Texas. Uh, I was doing some gigs down there last year, and I had a day off. And I was out walking around on this guy's ranch, and there were birds on the high line. And I started thinking about a song, and the whole song kind of came to me that day, which was kind of a thank you. I think Kim might have had a hand in it. Yeah, because he passed away in 16. Mm. But that kind of started the album taking a different kind of slant, too, from what it had been. So uh, you never know where they're going to come from, but I'll take them all. (laughs) So true. If Tomorrow Never Comes, that that is probably certainly your biggest hit. That is very much an in-my-life kind of song. Yeah, in my life, if I had top five songs, that one would be in the top five. And in fact, I did a a record a few years ago, and the one song on there was The Day John Lennon Died, because I remember that vividly. And uh, I guess it was 40 years later, they had a big article in the New York Times of people reminding them where they were when John got killed. And so uh, I kind of stole the In My Life lick (laughs) at the beginning of the the song to kind of get me into it. But um, such a great, great song. December 8th, 1980 feels like so long ago Time has flown by so fast Change has come so slow I remember right where I was The night the news came on The shock and sadness when I heard that John was gone. If Tomorrow Never Comes has a lot of that in there. Um, yeah. Remembering the people that you loved and telling them you love them while they're still around. And that's why In My Life is still being recorded by people today. You did a cover of it as well, didn't you? I did. On one of my records, I did it because I've only done one or two covers. And that song to me is just the epitome of a perfect song. But of all these 
these friends and lovers there is no It's the songwriting, it's the playing, and then it is George Martin in the production. That little piano come harpsichord bit in the middle just brings it all so much together. Yeah, and it just comes in out of the blue, but it takes it in a whole different direction. And that's what they were so great at doing, is just having something going along, and then it took a left-hand turn, and you're going, whoa, what just happened here? They were just so good at that. And that's, to me, what's kind of missing these days in a lot of music is somebody being willing to take that left turn and turn a song into something different. If tomorrow never comes Will she know how much I loved her Did I try in every way To show her every day That she's my only one And if my time on earth were through And she must face this world without me Is the love I gave her in the past Gonna be enough to last If tomorrow never comes So that was one of the very early songs that Garth Brooks actually put out of yours. Is that correct? That's correct. That was the first song we ever wrote together. We pitched Hit Around Town for about a year, and we pitched him around town trying to get him a record deal. And all the record labels said, nobody's going to sign somebody named Garth. It sounds like you're gargling, you know? And uh, (laughs) so one night at the Bluebird Cafe, he got to sing one song, and he sang If Tomorrow Never Comes. And somebody from Capitol Records who had been in the audience to hear somebody else and had passed on Garth for the third time that week came up to him afterwards and said, hey, maybe we missed something. Why don't you come back in? And he went back in and got a record deal. And that was his second single and his first number one. Yeah, again, that's so reminiscent of the Beatles story in 62. They got turned down by everybody until, well... Basically, EMI said, George Martin, you're going to do this because we want to sign them as songwriters. We don't care if they make anything of themselves as a band, but we like their songs. Well, just having the insight to like those songs, and I think EMI came out ahead on that one. Just a little bit. (laughs) And the guy who didn't sign them, Decca, I heard him talking two or three years ago, you know, and he still kicks himself that... I don't know why I didn't get them, but boy, I wish I had. But it worked out the way it was supposed to work out. Indeed, as we said, had they actually followed up and continued with them, it just wouldn't have been the same. Uh, although, I mean, there, there's other versions of that because George Martin almost left EMI to go to DECA. So in uh, one of these other universes, it was George Martin in 62 that picked them up at DECA. So, you know, well, that's yeah. the way the universe goes. 
Yeah, exactly. It just depends which one you're stepping into. (laughs) Since the multiverse is such a thing these days. That's right. (laughs) All right. Anything else you want to say about your trip? You want to say about the record? You want to say about the Beatles? Obviously, you know, there's lots of influence in your work, even though it's not necessarily obvious to the typical country audience, although the country audience may not even necessarily go back and know what is in that the Beatles album. It's like, oh, you know, they'll hear Wanna Hold Your Hand, which incidentally is a country tinge song in a lot of ways. Pretty much, yeah. A lot of their stuff was, I don't want to spoil the party. You know, I could name a whole bunch of them that really had the country influence. And a lot of that is because George Harrison was such a Chet Atkins fan and could play all that stuff that not a lot of guitar players his age could at that time in 63, 64. But, you know, for me, part of it was like when you were over there in Liverpool, just the energy of it and just to see where they came from. And then also know when we were eating our cereal in front of the TV, how much they changed the world. And people still kind of know who the Beatles are. That A lot of the young people are rediscovering them now. My my step-grandson's first record that he bought on vinyl was the Beatles' number ones. That blew my mind. And it just shows that there's always a resurgence. But I think so many people don't really realize the impact that they did have on the whole culture for so long and still continue to do that. And that's one of the reasons I wanted to do this record is just remind people on how great they were and how they changed the world. So I'm just grateful for everything that they've done and the way they've influenced me and the way they shaped my life. And McCartney's still out there shaping my life because he gives me the inspiration to want to go out and keep playing with a band and performing around the world and having fun doing it and being grateful for it, be able to do that. Have you had the chance to see the McCartney live show? I have not. Uh, Well, you're fortunate in that he is certainly coming back at the end of this year, beginning of next, we're hoping he's going to announce some more dates in the States for next year. If you can see it, you really should see it. It it is quite possibly the best rock and roll show ever, although we're a little bit biased. Well, yeah, we are a little biased. Well, that would be great. You know, he was supposed to come to Nashville and do a benefit for a music school here in town. And so I had bought tickets to that and it was going to be a pretty small thing of maybe 50 or 100 people. I was so looking forward to it. And then something happened in his schedule where he couldn't do it. And so at the same week, he was going to go to Lollapalooza or whatever it's called. Uh, And so he ended up going and playing there instead. And the option was to get on a bus with 60 other people and ride to that place and maybe get a chance to meet McCartney. And I didn't go, but sometimes I wish I had, but I would love to see him, you know, while he's still out there doing it. I'm going back to your CD, Ken. I love your CD label. That's psychedelic. Whose thought was that? I have this woman who has done all my CDs from about the time I started doing them. Nancy Terrazine is her name. And she's always really inventive. And she was trying to find something that wouldn't have a trademark problem. And so she came up with that. And of course, psychedelic, I'm in, you know, and <laughs> yeah. just did a great job on the whole thing, but she always does. But that to me was just perfect. When I saw that, I thought, well, okay, that, that just kind of sums up the whole record right there. Yeah. It took me a while, but I did figure out it, it does say all we need is love. 
Yeah. Yeah, that's pretty cool. That's what they've been preaching all this time. That's right. I still agree with that. Peace and love, as Ringo says. There you go. And one thing I wanted to tell you guys, I've been doing a lot of stuff in Texas lately, and you said you get up to San Antonio, but I have a great friend who's in the Texas Musicians Hall of Fame, J-Boy Adams. He has a little church out in Waring, Texas, that he has big name people come in all the time and play. And I'm doing that, I think it's like maybe November 4th, whatever that Saturday is. And then I'm doing a festival in, what is it, Lakey, Texas? Yeah, it may be. up. That's near DFW, Dallas? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Uh, there's somebody yeah. who's bought a whole town, and it's because <laughs> they can. Yeah. And I think it's some big chef, maybe out of Houston or something like that, who's uh, part of it. And, you know, they're building hotels and restaurants, and so they're going to have a big pop festival out there, music festival, I think like the 7th through the 15th or something like that. So I'll be there for that, okay. too. If you're in the area, come around. Oh, definitely. Yeah, unfortunately, Texas is just so big. Right. But it's only, I think, uh, the wearing thing's only like maybe 40 minutes from San Antonio, which helps. So Yeah, it does. It's probably in the hill country. Yeah, it's in the hill yeah. country. Oh, yeah. It's a beautiful little area, maybe kind of right outside of Bernie. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Awesome. Just keep All that right. in We'll do. Uh, if you can make it a little bit closer, I mean, we certainly would always be willing to take a road trip up and around Austin. Lonnie and I do that a bunch. Okay. Well, we're kind of working on that too. Uh, J-Boy has some people there and some people in Houston. So mm-hmm. we're seeing what we can scare up here in the next few months or so. We definitely would like the opportunity to meet you in person. This has been a great discussion, I think. Well, yeah, you guys are awesome. Thank you so much for having me, and I just appreciate it more than you know. Well, why don't we close out with letting you tell us a little bit about where people can get the record. I mean, they can listen to it on YouTube and on whatever streaming platform they want, but we always urge people to get physical copies, and that helps you out more than the stream. As you say, you get paid nothing on the stream just about. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, the best way now, I used to do all my stuff through CD Baby, which sold vinyl and sold CDs, and they kind of stopped this last couple months. So that's why I went to TuneCore. But I think Amazon, you can get the hard copy. But also, if you email me at kentblazy.com, if somebody wants a hard copy, I can definitely autograph it and send it to them. And to me, CDs sound so much better than what you can hear on streaming. So just keep that in mind. Yeah, even the high-bit MP3s are really not the same quality as what's on the disc. Exactly. So it's still my favorite way to listen to stuff. And I'm lucky all my cars are so old, they have CD players. (laughs) Thank you for joining us. We hope you have continued success with the record. How's it doing, by the way? You know, it's doing good. I'm getting interviews from people kind of all over the country and even over in England. Some people are talking about it. So uh, I was at a thing the other day and a woman I met, his father booked the Beatles in the Hollywood Bowl and she had heard about the record. And she said, you know, I still talk to McCartney every once in a while. If you get me (laughs) a a copy, I'll send it to him. So who knows? I love it. (laughs) Yeah. I'm sure he has so much to listen to, but your credentials are such that it might fall to the top of his list. Well, maybe just seeing the cover might help, you know? <laughs> this is true. Saying, I know those guys. <laughs> All right. Thanks again. And we will be back next week with a new show.
Okay. Uh, thank you, guys. Thank you, Kent. Have a good uh, one. Be safe, too. folks. Uh-huh. Subscribe to When They Was Fab on iTunes, Podbean, Stitcher, or wherever finer podcasts are found. Please join our Facebook group, and we could be reached at When They Was Fab and on Gmail. The opening theme was written, produced, and recorded by Jay Young Kim, Beaster Famine Studios, San Francisco, California. tell you one thing there's sickness going on and there's some good people doing work in hospitals but they got no bread to do it on not only are they working in a miserable condition with sick people 
but this this scraping the barrel for funds to keep going. Turned up nice again. 